We're going to be in Philippians this morning. We're starting a new book study. Philippians chapter 1, verse 1. We're going to look at the first 11 verses this morning. We finished the book of Mark, and now we'll be in the book of Philippians. If you need a Bible, we'd love to give you one this morning. There's some at the doors, and just pick one of those up and take that home with you as our gift. Philippians 1, verse 1. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your love for us. We thank you for your mercies that are new this morning. Thank you that your love is steadfast. It's unchanging. It's unwavering. Your promises are true. We ask that you would bless the study of the book of Philippians. That you would pour out living water through your word, through the power of your Holy Spirit, and that we would find ourselves experiencing greater joy in the Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Happiness. The Broncos are up by seven. Loss of happiness. The Broncos are now down by three. Looks like the game is over. Wait a second, there's a turnover. They kicked the field goal. Happiness has returned. The Broncos won. Happiness, found out you're getting a tax return. Great news. Same day, your car breaks down. Tax return was 1200 Repairs on the car are going to be 1600 Happiness, boss pulls you in. You get a promotion that comes with a raise. Woo! Awesome. Praise the Lord. God, we could really use it. Loss of happiness. Two months later, the boss pulls you in again to let you know you're getting laid off. Right? Life's a roller coaster, isn't it? Ups and downs and ups and downs. And happiness goes right along with it. There's got to be a better way to live. Would you agree? And it's joy. The book of Philippians presents to us the biblical truth of joy. That our names are written in the Lamb's book of life. That doesn't change. If you have your job or you lose your job, your name's written in the Lamb's book of life. If you have your health or you don't have your health, your name is written in the Lamb's book of life. We have our loved ones, or our loved ones have gone home to be with the Lord. Our name is written in the Lamb's book of life. This truth of joy in the Lord, it fortifies us. It strengthens us. Nehemiah wrote and he said, The joy of the Lord is your strength. Joy is different than happiness. Happiness comes and goes, but joy is based on the truth of who God is, his promises, and our relationship to him. Doesn't mean that pain's not real. It doesn't mean that prison-like experiences and hard times aren't real. Paul is writing this letter while he's in prison. He's having to live out this biblical truth of joy. My prayer of the next few weeks as we study the book of Philippians is that God would take us into a greater reality of joy, of rejoicing in the Lord. Paul will use the word joy four times in this letter and rejoice ten times in this letter. And he'll also exhort us in our mind. He often refers to the mind in this letter. Our thoughts. I believe that our mind is very much connected to our joy in the Lord. My pastor growing up, he'd put it this way. He says, if you don't change your mind, God won't change your heart. But if you do change your mind, God will change your heart. So I'm not going to let my emotions drive me. I'm going to hold on to who I know who God is and the truth of his scripture. So let's look in verse 1 together. 
Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Jesus Christ. If you're not familiar with the Apostle Paul, his background, his story, is he didn't always love the Lord. He had a heart that was against God. He persecuted Christians, didn't believe that Jesus was the Messiah. God called him by name. His life was changed. He was saved. And very quickly, he began to develop a heart for God's work. He went from being a persecutor to a pastor. God called him as an apostle to go out to different areas, different regions, to be able to plant churches, to see people come to know Christ and set up local leadership. And he's journeying with Timothy. He often traveled with Timothy. Timothy was a younger man. We know from the book of Acts, his background, that his mom was a Jew and his dad was a Gentile. His mom and grandma were believers, but there's no mention of his dad or his grandfather being a believer. Yet, God worked in his life in a very young age. He dedicated himself to serve the Lord. Maybe your spouse isn't a believer. Maybe you're a single parent. Look at Timothy's life as an encouragement. God is more than faithful to be able to work and, and intervene. They're together in this prison, Paul and Timothy, and they're bondservants of Jesus Christ. Bondservants goes back to the Old Testament. If you were a Hebrew and you fell onto hard times, you could then become a slave if you couldn't provide for yourself to another Hebrew. But they could only keep you as a slave for six years. And then on the seventh year, you were let go. You were, you were set free. Unless you loved your master, your master was kind and faithful, and you wanted to continue as their slave, you could become a bondservant, a slave by choice. Paul says, I'm a slave by choice to Jesus Christ. Paul and Timothy had made this choice together, and they're saying, we are committing ourselves to serving the Lord. To all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi with the bishop and the deacons, he addresses this church as saints, because they're in Christ. We think of saints as those that lived an exceptional life. After they die, a church council gets together and says, you're a saint. That's not a biblical understanding of a saint. It represents our position in Christ. If you're in Christ, then you're a saint. So you could introduce yourself as saint so-and-so. Wouldn't recommend it though. Probably wouldn't go over very well. So you're saints in Christ. He says to all those who are in Christ, he also lists the bishops and the deacons. Bishops is overseers or pastors. Deacons is, literally means servants. So it also addresses those that are leading inside of the church. This church is located in Philippi, and we get a little bit of background of the church of Philippi and who Paul is, is writing to. You might want to write down Acts 16. We see the birth of the, the church of Philippi. It's miraculous. Paul believes that God is calling him one direction, but there's a closed door. Ever had that in life? Then he receives direction from the Lord through a vision, through a dream. There's a man in Macedonia that's asking for his help. So he comes to Macedonia. He comes to Philippi, which is Greece, looking for this man who, who needs help. Paul's practice was to always go to the synagogue first to minister to the Jews. There's no synagogue in Philippi. It's a Roman colony. There, there's not enough Jews to have a, a synagogue. He finds a group of women that are praying by the river, a group of, of Jewish women, but there's no man there. Lydia is one of these women. God tells us that her heart was opened. God opened her heart. She received Christ and her whole household. Then there's a a girl who is demon-possessed. 
God casts out that demon through the Apostle Paul. And this causes a stir in the community that ultimately results in Paul and Silas being arrested. Beaten and arrested, thrown into the prison in the middle of the night. You find Paul and Silas praying and worshiping, singing songs to God. Probably not sounds that you would normally hear at the prison in the middle of the night. I don't really want to spend the night in prison, do you? I don't mind a short little visit to a prison to do some prison ministry, but I imagine it gets pretty crazy in the middle of the night. And here's Paul and Silas singing and praying and worshiping. There's a jailbreak. Earthquake. God broke open the jail. Paul convinces all these prisoners to not flee because that would mean the execution of the jailkeeper. The jailkeeper ends up getting saved, the man in the vision, and his household. They bring Paul to their house and they clean his wounds. The person that gave him the wounds, that ordered his beating, is now cleaning his wounds. This is the church of Philippi. Paul had a deep relationship with this church, a deep love for this church. Several reasons why he's writing to them. One is he wants to thank them because they had sent a financial gift to him while he was in prison. So he writes back and he says, he says, thank you. Also, he warns of false teaching, plus there's division inside of the church. Two ladies are fighting to the point where Paul has to write them and encourage them to walk in, in unity. That's why he's writing to this church and this group of believers. In verse 2, grace to you and peace from God our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. As you study Paul's letters, you'll find that many times he includes this greeting. Grace was the Greek greeting, and then peace was the Hebrew greeting, shalom. He always puts them together, and he always puts grace before peace. You'll never find peace before grace. I believe this is more than just a trite greeting from Paul, but he knows that us as believers, we need a current dose a fresh outpouring of God's grace. What is God's grace? It's what we don't deserve. Unearned, undeserved, unmerited favor. God poured that out in our lives in salvation, but he continues to pour out grace in our lives. What if God gave us what we deserve today? Look out, right? So Paul is saying, grace to you through the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And when we know the grace of God and we're living in the grace of God, then that results in peace. If we don't know the grace of God and we're not experiencing the grace of God and our relationship is based upon our works with, with the Lord, then we don't have peace. If the situation that I'm struggling with depends on my effort to make it work, I'm not going to have peace. But if I know his grace, then it results in peace. If I've failed, if I've sinned and made mistakes and I don't understand God's grace... I'm not going to have peace. So we experience God's grace. It results in God's peace. May God grant us a fresh outpouring of his grace and his peace. I thank God upon every remembrance of you. Paul's in prison. If I was writing a letter from prison or a text or an email, I might say things are really difficult in here. Could you guys please pray for me? I mean, this, is, this is not a good situation here. Paul doesn't focus on all the things he could complain about. He focuses on what he could rejoice in. He focuses on what he can be thankful for. And he says, I'm so thankful. Every time I think of 
the church in Philippi, I'm thankful for them. Do you have one or two believers or a handful of believers, a group of believers that every time you think about them, you're just like, I'm so thankful for them. I'm thankful how they loved me, prayed for me, invested in my life. I think of our church, Rocky Mountain Calvary. I came to RMC, came on staff from the Northwest here to be a youth pastor when I was 21 years old. And God has worked in my life and in our family and Amber and I and our kids so much through this body of believers. And I'm so thankful for you guys. I think of individuals that have journeyed with us. And God, thank you so much. Maybe pick up the phone and, and text somebody today and say, you know, I'm so thankful for you. I'm thankful that God has put you in my life and you're my brother or you're my sister in Christ. And this brings me to my first point this morning. You guys ready? Fortified in relationship. Fortified in relationship. Think about a fortress, a strong tower, a a rampart that we're going to take refuge in. And one of those is the body of Christ. Paul here is at a difficult point. He's at a tough place. And what do we find first and foremost? He says, Timothy's with me. And I'm so thankful that the church of Philippi is with me, even though we're not in the same location. Sometimes we know believers are with us, even though we're not in proximity to to one another. And he says, I'm thankful for you. You need the body of Christ. I need the, the body of Christ. We need relationship with one another. If you know Christ as your Savior, you are in the body of Christ. You are knit into the body of Christ, whether you realize it or not. At the men's retreat, Pastor Rich was talking about aspen trees. And we know aspens have their root systems linked together, don't they? And for a long time, scientists believed that they were the largest living organisms as they're linked together. I guess recently some mold has beat out an aspen tree as the largest living organism that they, they discovered. But what's the lesson of the aspen tree? They're stronger together, Right? If you have an aspen tree in your, your yard, you know this because other little offshoots come up in places that are undesirable, right? And you are linked to brothers and sisters in Christ that provide nourishment and strength and grounding. So though we know that we're part of the body of Christ, what does it take to have these types of relationships? The kind of relationships that Paul is enjoying, to have people in your life that are going to be in your corner in difficulty, It's a four-letter word. I'm going to say a four-letter word in church. Time. Takes time, doesn't it? In order to have a relationship like this that Paul's describing, we have to invest time. That's difficult for us, isn't it, in our society? We don't have time. We don't take time. So invest that time in other believers. It might mean a men's study. It might mean a, a woman's study. It might mean a small group may not be anything that's organized through Rocky Mountain Calvary. You, you know believers and say, you invite them over to your house. Say, Let, let's get lunch together. Let, let's connect. I want to hear what, what's going on in your life. Because as we're making investments along the way in our lives to be in relationship with other believers, then all of a sudden when we find ourselves in prison, when we find ourselves in difficulty, guess what? Timothy's right there. Guess what? The Church of Philippi is right there. You've got a group of people on your contacts list that you can say, hey, would you pray for me? I'm getting crushed right now. I'm getting my world rocked in and we're we're fortified. So it's worth that investment in relationships. Verse four, always in every prayer of mine, making request for you with joy. First mention of joy. 
for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now. Paul takes joy in the fact that he can pray for the church of Philippi. There's a lot that he can't do for the church of Philippi. But he says, this is what I can do. So I'm going to take joy in what I can do. I can bring you before the Father, believed in the power of prayer. And then he says, we have fellowship in the gospel. Fellowship in the gospel. And this is the second point. Is we're fortified in the gospel. What is the gospel? The gospel is this, that Jesus died for our sins, was buried, and rose again according to the scriptures. He died for our sins. He rose again for our sins, that as we believe in his finished work upon the cross, we're saved. That's good news. And we share that in common. The word fellowship is koinonia. In the Greek, it means to share in common. We share in common the gospel, and the gospel fortifies us. The gospel strengthens us. The death and the resurrection of Christ remains, even in the midst of difficulty. You can put Paul in prison, but you can't take the gospel away from the Apostle Paul. You can't take away the body of Christ, who also believes in the gospel with the Apostle Paul. I want us to jump down to verse 7, and then we'll come back to verse 6. Verse 7, Just as it is right for me to think this of you all, because I have you in my heart, inasmuch as both in my chains and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you all are partakers with me of grace. So Paul is reminding them that what links them together is grace in the gospel. And grace and the gospel is something that present tense impacts their lives. Present tense gives them them strength. Present tense is something that they're connected to. Something that I've been meditating on and examining the last two weeks a lot is what I'm noticing about my relationship with the Lord is over time I will tend to move away from a grace-based, filled relationship with the Lord and more relate to God on a works-based relationship with Him. Where I won't say it out loud, but I'll, I'll begin to think that God's favor and His love and His blessing in my life is dependent upon what I do. And it's biblical things. It's things like being a good husband and being a good father and I'll, I'll try to really focus on those things and then think, well, if I, if I do this just right, then God will pour out blessing on my family. And we hear a lot of teaching on that, don't we? You know, Christian living and how to be a, a good worker in the workplace and a good spouse. And if you're single, how to live out singlehood and impurity and if you're a parent, how to do parenting in a, in, a, in a godly way. and They all come from Scripture, and they're all really good. But what I find then is I start to interpret that if I, if I do those things, then God loves me, and then God gives blessing. And if I don't do those things, which inevitably I fall short, I can't fulfill the system that, that I'm relying upon. I feel guilt and shame and condemnation, feel that I don't measure up, And start to struggle with doubt. And well, God's not going to bless my family. God's not going to use me as a pastor. You know, and then I go into comparison. What happens then? I find somebody else in my mind that's just rocking it as a dad. 
rocking at it as a husband, rocking at it as a pastor. And I go, man, if I could just do the system like them, you know, if I could just get my act together like them, then God would bless. And it's a dangerous trap to fall into because condemnation, guilt comes in, comparison comes in. But then if I happen to fulfill the system according to my standards, pride creeps in, doesn't it? I'm doing pretty good, you know? Why can't these other slackers get their act together, right? And that's not a gospel-based relationship with God, is it? That's not a grace-based relationship with God. Did you know that God doesn't love you more because you came to church this morning? He's not going, you know, I've got a bigger bucket of blessing to give you because you came to Rocky Mountain Calvary this morning. And you know what? He's not going, oh, you gave tithe this morning when you came. So now I've got two buckets of blessing to give to you because you did these things. So then you go, well, where does all that play in? Why would we go to church? Why would we read our Bible? Why would we want to be a godly spouse or live in a godly manner or be a godly parent? Live out singleness in in a godly way. Because we get to. Not because we have to. Because the gospel forgives us completely. Belief in the gospel justifies us fully before we even had the opportunity to go to church. Before we even had the opportunity to press in to the godly life. And so it's a challenge for me, even though I teach these things, to really live in grace, to live in the gospel. And then once I think if I can get to that place, if I'm living in grace and living in the gospel, it's a lot easier to do relationship inside of the body of Christ. Because I know I'm forgiven. I know that God is being gracious to me. I know that God's not giving me what I deserve. So then that's a lot easier to be able to extend that to others. Instead of expecting them to be perfect, is realizing, oh, okay, we're linked together in the gospel. We're linked together in grace. So may we be refreshed in the grace of God, refreshed in the gospel, rely upon his grace, rely upon the gospel. That's what Paul reminds them of. Let's go back to verse 6. This is a great verse to meditate upon, underline. Being confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. Paul's confident. Saying God started a work in you, and he'll be faithful to complete it. Paul could get really discouraged that he can't be with the church of Philippi. And thinking, who's going to continue the work there? But he knows. God started the work. God's going to continue the work, and God's going to finish the work. So point number three is we're fortified in promise. Church, we're fortified in promise. This is the promise of God. He's putting his character on the line. He says, I'm going to finish the good work that I started. He's a great starter. He authors salvation in our lives, just like he did with Lydia. He opened up Lydia's heart. He opens up our heart. It's difficult to start new things, isn't it? To get the courage to start new things. Fear of failure. How's it going to work out? Don't know if I'm going to be able to accomplish this. Sometimes I've looked on YouTube videos on how to build this, but I don't know if I would ever be able to, to build this. Maybe you're saying, I'd really like to go to school, but I don't know if I'll be able to finish. I don't know if I'll be able to pay for it. I'd really like to step out and invest in this relationship, but I don't know what will take place. And we can easily get to that place where we don't want to start anything. But God's a good starter. 
But you know what? You know what's also difficult is finishing something you've started. Now, you don't have to answer me, but I'd love to know, you know, how many projects do you have at home that are unfinished, right? Now, no nudging your spouse right now. (laughs) And sometimes we get them finished 80% where everybody that comes over thinks it's finished, but we know it's not fully finished. Sometimes it's easier just to start another thing than to finish the project that we've, that we've got going. And isn't it a comfort to know the creator of the universe, the God that sent his son to die for us and rise again, is a perfect starter and he's a perfect finisher. And Paul's confident of this. And if we get this crossed in our understanding, joy's going to go out the door. Because we're going to start to go, it's my job to finish me. See, we're not our own work. We're God's work. The gospel and Christian living is not behavior modification. It's not make yourself more like Jesus because that would bring glory to us. Jesus saved us. Jesus is sanctifying us. He's making us more like himself where we know it and others know this isn't the work of me. This is the work of God in my life. Know it. Believe it. God, you're going to finish that good work that that you started in me. And then look at the beginning of verse 7. It says, just as it's right for me to think this of you all. There we have the first reference to Paul's thinking, his mind. And he says, this is what I'm thinking about the church of Philippi. God is going to finish the work that he, he started there. Maybe you've been really discouraged because someone that you love is struggling, but you know that God started a good work in their life. He's going to be faithful to finish it and hold on to that. He's going to finish that work that he started in that believer that you love, whether we see the work in their lives or not. In verse 8, For God is my witness, how greatly I long for you with the affection of Jesus Christ. Paul's communicating love here. Saying, in my chains... I have you in my heart. I have the affection of Jesus Christ towards you. This word affection, it means compassion. And the language, the original language of the Greek, it lets us know it's the type of affection and compassion that you feel in your stomach. Have you ever been so burdened or moved for someone's condition and what they're going through that it affects you in your stomach? And this is what Paul is referring to. He's he's saying, I have the compassion of Christ towards you. As you do a study on the compassion of Christ in the Gospels, the compassion of Christ always moved him to action. In Mark 1, verse 41, Jesus was moved with compassion, stretched out his hand, and touched him and said, I'm willing, be cleansed. He saw the leper, and his compassion moved him to touch the leper. He would see the multitudes, and he saw them, a sheep without a shepherd, and he had compassion, and it moved him to action. And here Paul says, I have affection of Christ towards you, and it's moved me to action. It's moved me to pray for you. In verse 9, and this I pray. Fourth point is fortified in prayer. Fortified in prayer. Paul can't be with the church, but he can pray for them. And he knows that God hears prayers, and it's going to be a rampart. It's going to be a defense. It's going to be encouragement in these lives of believers as, as he prays for them. You may say, I don't have a Paul praying for me. Well, you'd probably be surprised if you really knew who was praying for you. But we know without a shadow of a doubt that Jesus is praying for us. 
In Romans 8, also in the book of Hebrews, it says that Jesus is making intercession for us. Isn't that cool? He's bringing our needs before the Father, saying, this is what Eric needs today. This is where he's struggling. This is his weakness. He's doing that for all of us, and he's interceding on our behalf. There's fortification that takes place in prayer. What is Paul praying? I really appreciate the prayers of the Apostle Paul because they're short and they're insightful. We can take these prayers and we can pray this for one another. We can pray this for believers that we love. It says that your love may abound still more and more, more in knowledge and in all discernment. Why would love need to abound? Because love is the greatest. To love God and love our neighbor as herself. 1 Corinthians 13 tells us that three things remain, three things abide, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love, isn't it? This week in our church, we had a graduation. Man, as some of you know, by Ron Irwin. And he is known for his love. He went home to be with the Lord, 68 years old. Had a heart attack, minor heart attack. Thought he was going to pull through it. Complications, home to be with the Lord. In the hospital Sunday, Monday morning, he's with the Lord. Came here on Wednesday nights, was also really plugged in at a church in Woodland Park, lives in, in Woodland Park. Went to his funeral on Friday at 2 and the testimonies of the way that Ron loved people. Just poured out his love on people. Kids expressing that they called him Grandpa Ron. That's, that's what matters, right? At the end of our lives, wouldn't that be wonderful if people were at our funeral, they're saying, you know what? They love God and they loved me. They loved people. So may love abound. There's no ceiling to love. There's no limit to love. Love can always abound in our lives. Love for God and love for others. Love's expressed in knowledge and discernment. Greater knowledge of the Lord. May we never approach the scriptures like, oh, been there, done that. Read the Gospels, got that down. Read the book of Job, got that down. Read the book of Philippians, yep, got it. We go, oh, there's so much more to learn of the Lord. There's never a ceiling to our knowledge of the Lord. This is personal and exacting knowledge of God and then discernment. He prays that the church would have discernment, that they would know what's right and wrong and know what's from God and what's not from the Lord. And as we're doing our lives and we're watching things and listening to things and making decisions and people are throwing stuff at us to have discernment, to have a filter to be able to say, okay, this is from God. This is right. But this, this isn't. This is definitely not from the Lord. In verse 10, that you may approve the things that are excellent. God wants us to be able to prove or examine or scrutinize and go, oh, this is excellent. This is really good. This is f- from the Lord. But then also to be able to decipher what's not excellent. That you would be sincere and without offense till the day of Christ. Sincere speaks of being pure being tested by the sunlight, being authentic or genuine, to love God with with your heart, a sincere faith, without offense speaks of being above reproach. Not perfect, but above reproach, where someone can't come and bring accusation against our lives. In verse 11, being filled with the fruits of righteousness, which are by Jesus Christ. 
the humbling thing is this morning is we're filled with something, you know, filled with myself, filled with the things of this world, filled with anger, filled with bitterness. And God wants to fill us with his fruit through the power of the Holy Spirit. Notice that the fruits of righteousness, they come by Jesus. We can't produce them. It comes through abiding in Jesus, loving Jesus, spending time with Jesus, his life being lived, lived through us, not us trying to conjure up these fruits. It's so frustrating, isn't it? I want to be more loving. I want to be more patient. I want to be more patient. I want to be more patient. Oh, I hate trying to be patient, you know? It's like, fail before we even get started. Put the focus on Jesus. Walk with Jesus. Follow Jesus. Follow the leading of the Holy Spirit. It's by Jesus that these fruits flow from our lives, and it's to the glory and the praise of God. So I have to step back sometimes and go, you know, why do I want to live a godly life? You know, why do I want to live godly in my singleness? Why do I want to be a godly husband or a godly dad? Why do I, I want to be godly in the workplace? And if we're honest, if I'm honest, it's a lot of times because we want people to think well of us. We want our kids to go, oh, dad's a good guy. Mom, man, she's, she's, she's a great woman. We want our coworkers to look at us with, with respect. We want other people in the, the body of Christ to respect us. And that's not it at all. We should want God to be glorified. Amen? Say, I just, God, I want you to be glorified. I want people to understand that it was your work in and through my life, and God is praised. People understand they could never do this. This isn't a work of themselves. This is a work of God in their lives where God receives the praise. So what have we seen this morning is we're fortified in relationship. Let's make this practical. Is invest in relationships inside of the body of Christ. A lot of times we want people to take the initiative with us, don't we? I wish someone would call me, or I wish someone would ask me how I'm doing. It's be the one that takes initiative. Be the one that reaches out to, a, to a, another, another believer because you're going to benefit from rich relationships. Take the time today, you know? Take a few minutes, maybe even before you leave the church building, and text or call a believer that has really invested in you and made a difference in your life. Maybe they're here this morning and just, just say, you know, every time I think of you, I'm so thankful for you. You've been such a faithful brother or sister in Christ we're fortified in relationship. We're fortified in the gospel. It's not your work. <laughs> it's not my work. What causes us to be strengthened in our salvation and what is our foundation in life and our covering, it's not our work. It's what Christ has done for us upon the cross. Let's relate to him in grace and in the gospel. And we're fortified in promise. What's the promise? God's a good starter and he's a good finisher. He's going to finish the good work that he started in you and started in others. And then we're fortified with prayer. To know Jesus is praying for us and that we get the privilege of praying for others. God hears your prayers and he answers those prayers. I've heard so many times people express, you know, I was going through such difficulty. I knew the body was praying for me and I could feel their prayers. God answers those prayers. Someone's around you going through difficulty, pray for them because we're fortified in prayer. I've had the privilege to witness friends' lives be fortified in the Lord. And please hear me on this. It's not the absence of pain 
or the absence of crushing or the absence of a prison-like difficulty. When I was first thinking of this fortification, I was almost thinking of a force field where everything just bounces off, right? We think of all the superhero movies or the cartoon Incredibles, if you haven't seen that for a while, where the daughter's able to just put a force field around everything. So I think a lot of times when we think about the truths of who God is, we think, oh, he's just going to put a, a force field around my life and then no difficulties ever going to come into my life. And it's not like that. Difficulty or rain falls upon the just and the unjust. Jesus said, in this life, it'll be hard. You will have tribulation. So that's not it. It comes right through and we go through difficulty in our life. We go through pain and crushing and loss and death and, and disease. And I, I watched friends as they have gone through difficulty. A year ago, a friend of mine, his, his son committed suicide, his 19-year-old son. And the, the depth of the pain and the sorrow and the crushing. And, but I got to tell you, I've witnessed this husband and wife also be fortified in the Lord to press into these truths that their name's written in the Lamb's book of life to press into a peace that surpasses understanding, to have to battle their thoughts in the midst of that trial. And I go, wow, the fortification's real, the pain is real, but the fortification is real. Another friend of mine, four years ago or so, his 24-year-old son was mowing the lawn this time of year in May, and he died of a heart attack. He collapsed, his wife was gone, his young son was gone, no neighbor heard him collapse, by the time they found him, it was, it was too late. Spent some weeks in a coma, but ultimately went home to be with the Lord. And when I talk with my friend, I can hear to this day the pain and the crushing and the brutality of, of that loss. That pain's never going to go away on this, this side of heaven. But I've also seen the fortification of the Lord and the joy of the Lord. It's almost like a dichotomy. How could these two exist together? Some of you remember Brad and Casey Ewing. He was our, our worship pastor for about five years. And I think about 2009, God called him down to Louisiana to lead worship at the church that he grew up with. And a few years before they came to Rocky Mountain Calvary, some of you know, know his story. They got home from church on a day like today. The young family, two, two young boys, they run into the house. Brad realizes he left something at church. Hops into the car, starts backing out of their driveway, and their son Jake comes out of the front door, comes behind the car. Brad doesn't know that he's there. Brad runs over his son. His son dies. I remember the first time that I met Brad, the first week of getting to know Brad. Such a joyful guy, fun-loving guy. We sat down in one of the church offices and he just began to share his story of losing his son. Right away, first week of knowing him. It just, just had happened a few years, years prior. And God has been faithful in Brad and Casey's marriage. Outside of the Lord, th those are the kind of things that tear marriage apart. And they're still married and they're still serving the Lord. And they would tell you it continues to be difficult and that loss is, is very real. But God has been faithful. Casey wrote a book about walking through the loss. And she said what got 
her to the place of continuing to be able to move forward was the promises of God's word. And she had to fight to stay in the word, fight to hold on to God's promises and to believe God's promises. She pressed into the fortification. Doesn't mean that it's easy. If you were to hang out with Brad today, I don't think you could find a guy that's more fun-loving. Like he would be goofing off in such an incredible way backstage prior to coming out and leading worship and we'd have to say, all right, Brad, we got to pray, right? And the kind of joy that he has in the Lord doesn't even make sense with the kind of loss that he has has been through. So I want to share those things with you because I know that for some of you, you're there this morning and you're going, yeah, I'm going through a crushing, brutal battle. And I want to tell you, man, I know the pain is real, but I also know the promises of God are real. Can I invite you into studying the book of Philippians? You know, a lot of times as we go through books of the Bible together, uh, it's easy to maybe not read ahead. You know, I understand that. But I want to invite you to really read and reread and read and reread the book of Philippians. And this week, read the rest of chapter 1. Because then as you come in next week, you're going to get so much more out of it. And we're going to take our time. We might not get through the whole rest of the chapter. But then each week to just read ahead. Because you know what's going to happen? Is through that process is the truth of Philippians are going to get into our hearts and our lives. And it's going to fortify you. And it's going to fortify me. So let's pray together. Jesus, I want to lift up those that find themselves in a crushing battle, in a real prison this morning. And just as we've read that there's strength in prayer and fortification that takes place in prayer, maybe they've lost a loved one. Maybe they've gotten news of cancer. There's difficulty with a child. There's a break in a relationship. There's news of infidelity. There's depression. There's discouragement. God, you know. And Lord, would you be faithful Would you come and would you shepherd them? Jesus, you tell us you're a good shepherd and would you lead them to green pastures and still waters and restore their soul and give them hope and peace in the midst of the difficulty. And God, would you forgive us for reorienting our relationship with you to works? We thank you that you bless us by your grace. And in our lives and in this fellowship, If you would see fit, would you just give us a fresh bucket of your grace?